Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Colin Wynn. Colin was last seen charging from Wallenstein's lines straight into the fog at the Battle of Lützen. He was rumoured to have fired the final fatal shot that killed the Swedish king and was condemned then to supposedly haunt the battlefield for all eternity. This of course is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, head on over to Patreon, where, like Colin, you can support this show and be a super generous history friend. Thanks to Colin for his support, and thanks to you, history friend, for listening. Now enjoy episode 57 of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 57 of the Thirty Years' War. So last time, we saw Gustavus Adolphus attempt to ride the wave of momentum in Germany following his thumping victory at Breitenfeld in September 1631. Surprisingly, perhaps, this mission proved easier said than done, as money shortages, German resistance, the recall of Wallenstein and some uninspiring campaigns put the kibosh on any promise Gustavus may have made himself to gain another Breitenfeld. Even with his invasion of Bavaria, the effective collapse of Germany before him and the presence of the Winter King in his camp, Gustavus would have to work very hard indeed to force another pitched battle. Those battles he did participate in, like against Tilly on the River Lech, or against Wallenstein in his base at Alta Vest, were a far cry from the stunning destruction of Imperial forces which Breitenfeld had been. And as he had worked to make Breitenfeld Part Two. Gustavus's enemies hadn't sat still, his allies had become somewhat apprehensive, and the money continued to drain away into the bottomless pit of the army, at approximately 100,000 men strong, by spring 1632. The pressure was certainly on, but by mid-November of that year, after smashing the speed limit and covering 650 kilometres in 17 days, Gustavus reached the edge of Saxony and found Wallenstein still making his way ponderously towards Leipzig. Like most sane observers, Wallenstein had expected Gustavus to take it easy and rest for the winter months, as was customary, but Gustavus couldn't afford to be customary. After a year of frustration, he was determined that an attack on Wallenstein's position was exactly what the doctor ordered. Wallenstein had fewer men and only a single night to prepare himself. Surely, the moment was perfect for a Swedish victory. Yet, as the two adversaries settled into their positions on the evening of the 16th of November, near a picturesque town called Lutzen, something insidious hung in the air, and it wasn't just the fog that seemed to obscure everything. 
This was a showdown unique to the Thirty Years' War. Despite Gustavus's expectations, it would be the closest thing to a draw that the conflict would see. It would also, arguably, usher in a new era of early modern warfare, which some historians believe did not significantly change until the Second World War. Without any further ado then, I will now take you all to mid-November 1632. No engagement of modern times has a greater mass of conflicting records than the Battle of Lutzen. From the various statements, you may sketch out a dozen different theories of the manner in which it was lost and won. It was, however, in the main, a simple battle in parallel order, fought with extraordinary obstinacy, and one whose phases were only those which may always occur in such an action, as the several parts of each line roll forward and back in response to reinforcements brought up or to gallant attacks, made or repulsed. This was the introduction which retired US general and author Theodore Dodge gave to the Battle of Lutzen in 1890. The controversy surrounding the battle stems mostly from the question of whether it was a Swedish or imperial victory. More than a century later, Dodge's assertion still rings true. Conflicting reports on what the Battle of Lutzen looked like remain problematic for the historian. Even the precise numbers of soldiers on both sides is difficult to pin down. If the historical record is clouded, then so too was the battlefield, as on the morning of the 17th of November 1632, a heavy fog landed and refused to lift, denying either side a clear line of sight. As battles involving gunpowder tended to do, visibility was further impeded by the abundance of gun smoke a few hours into the battle. This has created additional conflicting pictures over where each side lined up, what the area of Lutzen looked like, and even what the order of battle looked like for both commanders. Fortunately, we can cut through some of the mythology. Information regarding the number of soldiers, particularly on the Imperial side, have since been swollen thanks largely to the prevalence of Swedish records, which were subsequently accepted as fact by biased accounts, and were then handed down to the reader over the following centuries. These accounts assert the size of Wallenstein's force to be between 30 and 48,000 men, a widely varied number, and far in excess of what Wallenstein was actually capable of bringing to bear. After having distributed a great number of soldiers into Saxony, Wallenstein commanded around 13,900 men, with Poppenheim, his second, en route to reinforce with a further 5,300 men. These reinforcements were desperately needed, but Gustavus, with his 19,200 men, was also awaiting news of reinforcements from John George of Saxony before deciding to attack anyway due to his numerical advantage. The exaggeration of the imperial armies was probably done to add increasing drama to the challenge which Gustavus faced, and to account for the less than stellar outcome of the battle for both sides. And these figures, by the way, are given by Peter H. Wilson in his book Lutzen. And what was the battle like? At its heart, Lutzen was a bloodbath of the First Order. There was nothing pretty, sophisticated or dashing about the way it was fought. Lines of infantry on both sides fired several salvos, spraying blood and brains onto their comrades. Sabres and pikes slashed and punctured, disemboweling as they did so. Cavalry charged and countercharged, trampling men underfoot, and occasionally subjecting these beasts of war to merciless fire. 
which destroyed horse as much as man. Cannon ripped through flesh and bone, sometimes decapitating, sometimes severing a limb in an instant. This was a 17th century battlefield, and the chaos and horror which confronted the soldier was matched only by the sense of foreboding and terrible responsibility that must have greeted the commander. It was no wonder pitched battles were rare in the Thirty Years' War, especially in comparison to the more decisive sieges. As Gustavus's earlier victory at Breitenfeld had in fact proved, a pitched battle could not win a war, though it could lead to greater opportunities for a successful siege, where more land could be won. Due to the abundance of recruits, indeed, not even the destruction of an army meant the end of the war, particularly when the recruitment pool had enabled both sides to employ as many as 100,000 men each. There's something ironic in the fact that after wielding such vast hosts of soldiers for so many months, at the Battle of Lutzen, both sides boasted fewer than 20,000 men each. 20,000, indeed, was the maximum number Gustavus felt comfortable commanding. Any more, so said the Swedish king, according to John Matusiak in his book Europe in Flames, any more than 20,000 men, and it was impossible to coordinate the army. And few men understood the difficulties of coordination better than Albrecht of Wallenstein. As he knew just as little of Gustavus's plan as the Swedish king did of his, Wallenstein attempted to spread his soldiers out and had seized other towns nearby Lutzen to the north. Other detachments from Wallenstein's army had moved to occupy several bishoprics, collect contributions and remove walls to prevent further resistance from the inhabitants. It was by no means clear, in other words, that Wallenstein could have to fight Gustavus at Lutzen, at least not until the morning of the 16th of November. To compensate for his numerical disadvantage, Wallenstein had taken advantage of several ditches and small anomalies in the earth to give his defending musketeers the best strategic position possible. The Generalissimo's penchant for establishing a skilful defence had not been greatly tested in the years before, save for the recent experience at the Alta Vest. Here at Lutzen, though, in the space of only an evening, Wallenstein made the most of the terrain to present a formidable challenge to Gustavus. Although the Swedish king had caught up with Wallenstein after several days of pursuit, defeating the imperial generalissimo challenged entirely for the Swedish king. Gustavus would not find a trembling foe mindful of its numerical disadvantage. Instead, he found an enemy which greeted his veterans with a grim determination. What was more, Wallenstein's army was one that had learned the mistakes of Breitenfeld. The aim, rather than marching in Tertios as Count Tilly had done, was to bring as much firepower to bear on the enemy as possible. So Wallenstein had mostly done away with those Tertios and replaced them with 1,000 men brigades, 10 men or sometimes 7 men deep, with pikemen standing behind these musketeers and ready to move forward in the ranks in the event of a cavalry charge or the descent into melee combat. Unwieldy, slow-moving squares of pikemen these were not, and we should be cautious when attributing a legendary status to Gustavus's men while ignoring the equal professionalism of his opponents. Wallenstein's army, after all, would not have been able to withstand the murderous firepower and horrendous conditions of Lutzen had it not been a well-oiled machine. As Wallenstein appreciated, well-oiled machines could be clogged up and seized with the advent of battle, so... At the end of the day, like so many commanders before him, he relied on the tenacity and forbearance of his men. It came down to a question, how many men could an army lose before it also lost heart? 
Lucen was about to ask this question to both Gustavus and Wallenstein, and the grim conditions of battle would provide the answer one way or another. True to his previous style at Breitenfeld, we're told that Gustavus addressed his Swedish and Finnish soldiers on the morning of the encounter, declaring, Beloved compatriots, the time has come for you to show to the world all you have learned in so many campaigns and combats. There is the enemy whom we have so long sought, not entrenched on inaccessible mountains as at Nuremberg, but standing before you in the plain, not with advantages superior to ours. You know with what care he has hitherto avoided meeting us, and now he accepts battle with reluctance because he is unable any longer to flee. Prepare to show yourselves the brave soldiers you are. Hold firm, stand by each other, and fight valiantly for your religion, your country and your king, and I will recompense you all, and you shall have reason to thank me. But if you conduct yourselves cowardly, not one of you will repass the Baltic and see again your native land. May God preserve you all. Then, riding down the battle line, Gustavus reached his German captains and addressed these soldiers. My brave brothers and comrades, I urge you by your Christian belief, your honour, your earthly and eternal welfare, to do your duty as you have always done it since you have been with me, especially since more than a year ago, when, near where we are now, you beat old Tilly. I expect the enemy before you will not escape a like fate. Attack with courage. You go to fight, not only under my eyes and by my orders, but by my side. I will go at your head and give you the example in exposing my life. Follow me, God, I hope, will give us a victory of which the memory will live with posterity. If not, there is an end of your religion, your liberty, your temporal and eternal welfare. By contrast, Wallenstein supposedly refrained from addressing his men, not necessarily because he had a disagreeable voice, as some historians have claimed, but because this had never been his style. Instead, the watchword Jesus Maria was established among the troops to distinguish friend from foe in the chaos to come. Indeed, as Cardinal Richelieu himself had put it regarding Wallenstein's manner, by his sole presence and the severity of his silence, he seemed to make his soldiers understand that, according to his usual custom, he would recompense them or chastise them. Words were useful on the morning of a battle, but Wallenstein had accomplished something far more important. He had squeezed as many strategic advantages as possible from Lutzen. Musketeers were placed in ditches which would slow the Swedish cavalry. The main road, where the two armies would face each other, was dotted with wagons for better defence. Stakes and pointed branches were turned towards the enemy, as had been done at the Alta Vest to murderous effect. Wallenstein was also greatly aided by the stubborn fog, which so compromised the view of the Swedish advance guard, though of course this weather could also hinder his ability to coordinate his soldiers along the mile-long frontier. Possession of skill in coordinating large numbers of men across such a wide front was only possible with experience and by listening to the accumulated wisdom of his subordinates, and Wallenstein was surrounded by such experienced men, such as Piccolomini, who would later distinguish himself against the likes of Louis XIV of France. For Gustavus, too, his list of commanders at Lutzen reads like a veritable who's who of future Swedish military greats, such as Johann Banner, Gustav Horn and Lennart Torstensen the latter of whom would become most famous for his lightning campaigns against Denmark in the early 1640s, 
which were so effective that that conflict from 1643 to 45 is often simply referred to as the Torstenson War. But these considerations were all for the future, as the sun shone weakly through the impenetrable fog at half 7am on the morning of the 17th of November, Gustavus performed his aforementioned speeches and then marched his army forward. To reach a position where he could properly bring his superiority in numbers to bear against Wallenstein, Gustavus would have to cross the Mulgraben River. Once he did so, as Wallenstein had predicted, Gustavus's freedom of action would be constrained. If we imagine the battlefield at Lutzen from the Swedish king's perspective, then after lining up in full battle order, the town of Lutzen would be two kilometres forward on the left, having crossed the Mulgraben River, which flowed northwards under the town and finished in marshland beyond. With these obstacles on his left flank, Gustavus had placed the Flossgraben River behind him. The Flossgraben was a winding river which had been altered to form a canal, so that the inhabitants of Lutzen could easily transport firewood. The Flossgraben flowed at the back of Gustavus's army before it curved up to his right, so that his army was virtually surrounded by the waters of the Mulgraben and Flossgraben together. Roughly a kilometre in front of Gustavus was the main road into Lutzen town, and a further kilometre behind that, Wallenstein's army was sprawled across a one-mile line. What Gustavus could not see from his position was Wallenstein's use of ditches and the environment, such as marshes, to force the Swedes to face him head-on. Proper surveying of the battlefield assured Wallenstein that Gustavus's left flank, where the Mulgraben River flowed, contained a great deal of marshes. As the river flowed north under the bridge, constructed by the citizens of Lutzen, this guaranteed that any effort to outflank the Imperial Army by riding around the town would not be possible. Indeed, Gustavus had little intention of attempting such flanking manoeuvres. He was confident that his numerical superiority would carry the day, and Wallenstein's hasty preparations demanded that the Imperial Generalissimo was anxious about such advantages as well. The battle was effectively joined at 10am after several salvos from the artillery of both sides, which enabled Gustavus's men to properly form up. Both armies were deployed in two lines, with the best infantry in the first line. Gustavus commanded the Swedish and Finnish horse on the right flank. After a few hours of murderous fire, the Croats on Wallenstein's left fled the field, and it became apparent that the best chance for enveloping Wallenstein would be here. The other side of the battlefield, on Gustavus's left flank, had been rendered impassable thanks, first, to Wallenstein's decision to set Lutzen on fire, second, the wind blew the resulting smoke into the Swedes' eyes, and third, Wallenstein's concentration of men were left facing Gustavus's left. These factors meant that the commander of Gustavus's left, Bernard of Saxe-Weimar, who will become important in the future, he had the task of dislodging the Imperials with his 3,000 cavalry on that left flank, but it was an incredibly difficult task. A considerable part of the battle was spent contesting the set of hills next to Lutzen, which Bernard's men repeatedly tried and failed to seize. In the Imperial centre line, a fierce, bloody battle was fought with the Swedes. The latter were the victors of Breitenfeld, utterly confident in their eventual success, and while they withstood heavy fire from Wallenstein's artillery, answering with their own, routing Wallenstein's centre was proving impossible. The time he had been given the previous night to prepare for the Swedish king had paid dividends. 
Then, in the early afternoon, potential disaster was on the horizon as the cavalry led by Poppenheim, which had moved ahead to capture a town north of Lutz on the previous day, had returned, exhausted, on Wallenstein's vulnerable left flank. Poppenheim's return was made possible only by marching 35 kilometres through the night, and while his 2,300 horse did not seem like much, they had the potential to turn the tide. They managed to rally the dispersed Croats, and together this force pushed back the advancing Swedes where Gustavus had once commanded. As the Swedish left flank buckled under the force of Poppenheim's charge, it appears that during this process, Poppenheim himself was hit and mortally wounded. That the loss of Poppenheim, a dynamic, ambitious and skilled subordinate of Wallenstein's for several years, is not the subject of greater discussion, can be explained by the loss of an even greater figure on the same field. Seeing his infantry repulsed and pushed back across the road, which ran like a red line between both armies, Gustavus returned with all haste to revive the spirits of his men, and it is then that catastrophe seems to have struck. His small party of defenders was set upon, and it became plain that the king was trapped. His retinue worked in vain to save their king, with few left standing by the end. A short time after the exchange, Gustavus was shot, whereupon he finally broke out, before being shot again, this time fatally. Much like the smoke and fog hampered the vision of his soldiers, so too has the passage of time and the presence of so many historical accounts clouded the events at Lutzen. According to the historian John L. Stevens, Gustavus's death was known from an early stage, and rather than ruin the morale of the Swedes, it drove them on to victory. The death of the king was already generally known, or at least suspected in the Swedish army. His horse, with its empty saddle covered in blood, running among the troops, had made known to the Swedish cavalry what had happened to their king. They knew he must have been slain, or was a wounded prisoner in the hands of his enemies. The soldiers of the fallen hero were filled with mingled sentiments of bitter grief, despair and vengeance. Duke Bernard of Saxe-Weimar made use of this strong feeling of the army, riding through its ranks, exclaiming, Swedes, Finlanders and Germans, your defender, the defender of our liberty is dead. Life is nothing to me if I do not draw bloody vengeance from this misfortune. Whoever wishes to prove he loved the king has only to follow me to avenge his death. The whole Swedish army, fired by a common enthusiasm, nerved by desperation, advanced to the attack. The death of their king, instead of destroying the courage of these brave troops, excited it into a wild and consuming flame. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yet, according to less other romantic accounts, perhaps... Bernard of Saxe-Weimar was not even aware that the king's death had occurred, nor could Wallenstein have been certain, and many other uncertainties regarding the battlefield still reign. It isn't certain if Pappenheim died during his cavalry charge before or after Gustavus. It's still hotly debated whether Wallenstein made use of one battle line or two. For many years it was claimed that Wallenstein was carried on a litter, suffering from syphilis, when in fact it seems more likely that he rode on a horse, but still suffered terribly from gout. Notwithstanding all these uncertainties, what was not in doubt was that Lutzen had descended from a set-piece battle with controlled flanks, battle lines and tactics into nothing short of carnage and slaughter. From the early afternoon, the battle had disintegrated. Commanders lost control amidst the poor visibility and confusion which pervaded the field. Upon learning of Gustavus's death, recorded Fletcher, his army plunged headlong into the apocalypse. It was simply a death grapple all along the lines. In the first charge, the Swedes, maddened by their loss, carried everything before them. The body of their beloved leader was rescued, the hostile guns retaken, and Wallenstein's powder wagons blown into the air. The Swedish footmen died where they stood. The flower of Gustavus's army was cut to pieces. The veterans from the Polish and Livonian wars were not used to running away, Nothing could induce Duke Bernhard to retreat, and Torstensen's artillery could still be plied with deadly effect. The imperialists could get no further than the high road. As the casualties mounted and desperate news began to filter among the troops, the day was seized by those commanders brave enough either to charge the enemy or resist his attacks. Certain figures like Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar, who repeatedly spurred on the Swedish-German left flank onto victory before the battle's end, deserve plaudits. But the sheer chaos of the encounter made the gathering of information difficult. Neither side knew how badly the other was affected, obviously not helped by the fog, until Wallenstein, horrified by the carnage, elected to withdraw before five o'clock, just as it was starting to get very dark. By that point, Bernhard had captured some strategically important hills and had begun to shell the imperial centre, but that central line of resistance, which so skillfully created the night before, remained resolute. It was an impressive feat to resist the victors of Breitenfeld for so long, especially when outnumbered, but it was in vain, as Wallenstein's withdrawal, the loss of his cannon, and the decimation of more than half of his army meant that Lutzen would be by no means considered a triumph for the emperor. Nor, of course, could it be considered a triumph for the Swedes. Even had Gustavus Adolphus survived, Lutzen would have been at best a Pyrrhic victory, the kind of battlefield version of the Altavest struggle we described in the last episode. But Gustavus's death changed everything about the battle. Of course, 
though it would be another week before Wallenstein was actually able to confirm his adversary's death. And Wallenstein could claim the medal of superior generalship, defending stoutly against great odds, while Gustavus sponsored an unimaginative and terribly costly frontal assault of defensive positions. In response to this, one could reasonably assert that poor visibility and a lack of good information reduced Gustavus's ability to make good tactical decisions, but still, a second Breitenfeld this certainly was not. It is true that Wallenstein's army was forced out of Saxony in the months that followed, but the celebration of the battle in Vienna made it plain that the deaths of those nameless soldiers and the outcome of that foggy battle mattered less to the war than its greatest casualty. For more than 18 months, Gustavus Adolphus had held friends in rapture and appeared to his foes like an invincible punishment from God. But now he was dead, and with him died the overall control he had wielded over Protestants, Germans, mercenaries, and everyone else in between. In subsequent years, Gustavus's comrades would remember him. One such comrade-in-arms was a Scottish officer by the name of Robert Monroe, who recalled many years later on the Swedish king, Such a general would I gladly serve, but such a general I shall hardly see, whose custom was to be the first and last in danger himself, gaining his officers' love in being the companion both of their labours and dangers. Indeed, you could argue that Gustavus shared too much in the dangers of his men. Had he exposed himself less, had he led from the back rather than from the front, history would certainly have been different. Unfortunately for the Swedish cause, though, Gustavus was not the kind of general or king to lead from behind. He would fight in Germany as he had fought his Polish wars and his wars against Russians and Danes, fully involved, fully determined and, often, fully exposed. It was this tradition of great Swedish warrior kings which was to be carried forward faithfully by Gustavus's nephew, King Charles X, and most notably his great-grand-nephew, King Charles XII. The tradition was to prove deadly, but also impossible for those warrior kings of Sweden to resist. Reportedly, none other than Gustavus himself saw his future and his fate in such a manner. In a conversation with his chaplain, as the army converged on Erfurt and rested for a while over the 7th to 10th of November 1632, so a week before the Battle of Lutzen, Gustavus supposedly confessed... Everyone venerates me so, and treats me as some sort of god. The Lord will soon punish me for this. It is tempting to read too much into such a quote, and to imagine Gustavus predicting he would soon be punished for his hubris, but it's more likely that such a confession, if indeed it was ever made to his chaplain, referred to some misfortune other than his untimely death and the collapse of the Protestant cause in Germany. It would have been above Gustavus' imagination to suppose that God would smite him down at the summit of his powers, thereby leaving his flock leaderless. Indeed, the leader of God's people was precisely how the German broadsheets had come to depict the Swedish king, as one poet recorded in March 1632. Whoever is not stubborn like the pharaoh, consider how God enticed a cherished hero to come here from midnight, in other words, the north, He is the consuming fire of our enemy. Gustavus Adolphus, the king of Sweden, who once received only modest respect, now everyone must admit that God can protect us through him. 
Nor was this all. Other polemics had attempted to use a revisionist approach to all of Gustavus's previous campaigns, be they against Poles, Danes or Russians, far removed from the current conflict. This was the purpose of one tract, entitled The Swedish Calling, that is, the dispelling of several incorrect opinions about the current changes in the Holy Roman Empire and the just reason for it. But that mouthful was only the tip of the iceberg. Another polemic attempted to justify Gustavus's godlike status by presenting him as the literal sword of God, as the fulfiller of several prophecies, and even as a descendant of Noah. Thus one broadsheet was entitled, Genealogy, the Royal Swedish Succession from the Flood to Present Times, compiled by most highly reputed authorities. By mid-1632, indeed, Gustavus had become so intertwined with this message of Protestant deliverance that his co-religionists would have found it impossible to imagine the religious struggle without him. Broadsheet after broadsheet depicting Gustavus and his promise of salvation for all Protestants was published during this time, even while Gustavus's military campaigns against the Alta Vest, for instance, in 1632, had been frustrating and disappointing. Protestants were encouraged to pray not only for his safety, but also for his help against the Catholic Habsburg tyranny, which only Gustavus was capable of protecting them against, of course. One broadsheet entitled, A Daily Greeting in Contemplation of the Royal Portrait, contained the Swedish king's image and a prayer which was intended to guide the reader. Its first strophe read, O noble hero, may God protect you, and grant you good fortune, blessings and victory against the enemies of Christianity, who for so long have oppressed us. And we should not assume Gustavus's death put an end to such proclamations. Instead, his death at Lutzen was recast as the sacrifice of the lamb, as the willing martyrdom of a king who faced overwhelming and possible odds, yet still pushed Protestantism forward onto victory, eagerly paying the ultimate price in order to do so. One broadsheet published in early 1633, for instance, Gustavus is seen portrayed in an open coffin, with the backdrop of his military victories playing out as an angel reaches down from heaven, laurel wreath in hand. The laurel wreath, a symbol of triumphing over death, was a powerful message. Just as Jesus had conquered the grave, so too would Gustavus, and he would rise up as a champion of Protestantism and live forever in the hearts of all faithful men. The lament which accompanied the scene is also worth detailing. Behold, the Lord acts in unexpected ways. At the height of victory, he gives us a sorrowful, odious joy. He tears from us through death the one man who, with the courage of a mighty lion and by many heroic deeds, gloriously saved us from the enemy when we were nearly lost. Here a mighty king, the Lord's anointed hero, risked his life without argument or hesitation, just so we could be free from oppression and fear, and was not afraid to shed his own blood. Because of the divine nature of his victories, the polemicists could do no other than portray his death as an ordained part of God's plan. Religious rhetoric was furiously intertwined with his death, just as it had been with the last few years of his life. Yet, due to the profound shock which Gustavus's sudden death engendered in the camp of his followers, it was still necessary to encourage the faithful. Thus, one broadsheet promised safety and security well into the future. God sends whom he wishes. He also sent him, Gustavus, and will continue to act this way. Thus, dear Germany, hold fast to God and act yourself. 
be thankful to him at all times and place your deep trust in him. And another urged Protestants to believe that the king's death was not merely a technicality and that immortality was already his. Our Swede lives on. He who was our hope, light and life will bring us peace and freedom. So dominant was the pro-Swedish propaganda during the period of Gustavus's life that Catholic counter-arguments rarely made an appearance. In fact, the very use of broadsheets to spread one's message and communicate the sins of the other side had scarcely been necessary, or possible, before Gustavus's triumphs. The intervention of the Swedish king changed all that, and the persistent presence of the Swedish army in Germany for the remainder of the war encouraged the propaganda press to continue in their work. So dominant were the pro-Swedish writers that it was only after Gustavus's death that Catholic polemists felt confident to answer back and deliver some striking propaganda of their own. These broadsheets from the Catholic side, for the most part, depicted the weakness of the Swedish king and urged Protestants, now that their paper champion had been slain, to repent and return to the emperor's good graces. Interestingly though, Gustavus Adolphus slips out of the pro-Swedish or Protestant broadsheets after 1634 almost entirely. The Thirty Years' War, so it seemed, moved on without the Swedish king. Yet, while the broadsheets moved on, the conflict which the late Swedish king left behind retained his unmistakable stamp. Without Gustavus Adolphus, the conflict may well have ended in 1630. His victories did not merely challenge the Habsburg supremacy, they also created a firm divide in the Thirty Years' War, which would only become more acute as the conflict progressed. And indeed, it was without Gustavus that Sweden's German allies, Sweden's Chancellor, and Sweden itself would now have to proceed. As one historian concluded, By the enduring force which his genius and character imparted to the Swedish nation, it maintained an influence nearly a century among the leading powers of Europe, much beyond what her actual strength and geographical position gave it. Indeed, it is possible to mark Gustavus Adolphus's reign in 1611 as the beginning of a Swedish empire, and Gustavus's intervention in Germany as the moment of Sweden's arrival on the world stage. If the Swedish Empire was just being born, though, then the Thirty Years' War was about to move into its 15th year, and to its more destructive, decisive, other half. We'll continue this story in the next episode of Course History, friends, and I hope you'll join me then. But until that time, this has been episode 57 of the Thirty Years' War. You are a wonderful history friend, or perhaps you are also a patron. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.